Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. Uh, thank you, all of you, for joining us. I want to welcome everybody to the booth. Uh, today we have Mishgan Darby, Shirley Abney, uh, and Iming Piancai, as always, our producer. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, with any luck, we will also be joined uh, by Abi, who's in Mexico City, and he'll be sharing uh, some of his relevant background. Uh, today, we'll be discussing the nature of child separation, which is obviously a broad and multifaceted subject in a lot of ways, but it is prompted by specific events on our southern border, wherein migrant families from Central America and Mexico are being separated uh, and detained, detained separately often. Uh, and this is an intersection issue, of course, uh, which draws on immigration, detention, uh, policy issues, uh, questions about enforcement, the president, administration, and all of that, uh, which I intend to discuss and I'm sure everybody will want to discuss. But our first guest, uh, Mishgan Darby, an old friend, an old, old friend, uh, has presented the issue to us in a much more intimate and personal way. Uh, that is when they are separated from their parents at a young age, no matter the reason, right? What are the psychological effects? What are the developmental questions? Uh, what does this say about, um, you know, our, our history as a country? Uh, so I want to start with you, uh, Mishgan. Mishgan Darby is the executive director of Art in Action in Menlo Park. Uh, welcome and thank you for being here today, Mishgan. It really is nice to hear your voice. One of my favorite things about doing this show is that I get to reunite with some of my favorite people, and it's been a really long time, and it's it's great to have you here. Thank uh, you. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, so I, I'd like you to start off, start us off in a lot of different ways uh, with some overview stuff, but I think a, a good place to start, at least for me, uh, is just a little bit uh, of a reminder about your personal history and background as it relates to this issue uh, of childhood separation and you know, this was your suggestion to do to do this show. So tell us a little bit about where that came from. Sure. So I'm a daughter of refugee parents. Specifically, my mom and my sister uh, came to the United States as refugees of war, of the war in Afghanistan. And um, in their uh, through throughout their journey, so they went from Afghanistan by way of foot um, to Pakistan and crossed the border there. I continue to think, you know, the current political climate, had they come to the United States and asked for asylum um, now, you know, would my sister have been separated from my mother? And I continue to think about the various children that I served as a program director of the Afghan Mental Health Project through the Afghan Coalition that I saw on a daily basis who were also refugees that were seeking asylum in this country um, and the impact that just the trauma that they had experienced in their home had on them, let alone had they been separated from their parents um, here, in, uh, uh, basically upon entry, right? Um, we talk a lot about how, you know, how the children are being separated from their families, but we don't talk about the long-term impact on the child itself. And that, as a mom, just kills me inside because... The smallest thing affects a child's developmental uh, kind of stages. If you look at children who have experienced abuse, we see that long-term they suffer health effects. If you see, if, if you like, basically see children who are in environments of divorced parents even, 
you see that they have outcomes that are a little bit, you know, kind of maybe emotionally they express themselves differently than other children as well. But we're not talking about how inhumane it is to separate a child from their parents, the person that they count on to nurture them, the person that maybe they have gone to to help them through, you know, through the, the sounds of gunshots outside or the sight of death that they've experienced or and anything that these people are escaping and then to have them be ripped out of the arms of their protector or the person that they care about and trust the most and into some facility like they are animals and um, with no explanation of when they're going to see that nurturer again. Um, and we are unaware of that, that, that the imminent impact that it's going to have on their future and the future of whatever country that they reside in later. Right. So and when you talk about some of these developmental considerations, most of that uh, is trauma, right? Most of these studies right. are about how trauma uh, affects the developing brain. You know, some of these children are tiny. You, know, you can hold them in, in their arms. They're not talking yet. They're not crawling yet. Um, and what, what the effect of that level of trauma is. Um, so can you touch a little bit on that, about what some of the actual developmental effects are before we, I mean, it's pretty lofty to expect that we can unpack all of these intersecting political issues, but I, I think before we move on to that, it is important to define and talk a little bit about what the stakes are. What, what are the effects of trauma uh, on young people uh, as you understand it uh, as a result of this kind of separation? Absolutely. Well, a lot of young people end up experiencing depression, mental health issues. Uh, most significantly, it's demonstrated that chronic disease patients frequently have had a history of trauma in their childhood. So even later in life, that starts to manifest, or even earlier in life. Um, so uh, their, their ability to learn is reduced significantly as a result of the trauma as well. So the effect of, you know, any kind of trauma on a child is significant, let alone the trauma of being separated from a mother or father or a nurturer, because they, they begin to lose trust in authority. They do not develop that. Um, and we've seen through research over and over again how, you know, if, if a child is kind of not exposed to that comforting um, individual in their life that they look up to and they trust, um, as children, they have issues uh, as far as authority is concerned as well. So uh, they, th th there's, there's a gamut of experiences that, that they undergo, both educationally, uh, health-wise, and um, otherwise. Right. Um, and to try and pivot a little bit towards uh, the political context here, at least in terms of defining the issue, uh, can you talk a little bit about what's happening on our southern border now, why child separation is kind of becoming a newsworthy subject? Uh, once again, it's obviously not unique to what's happening on the southern border. Uh, you've pointed out to me, obviously, the connections between what's happening there now with migrants and the legacy of childhood separation and slavery and incarceration. But can you just uh, bring us up to speed a little bit about why this is suddenly newsworthy as it relates to um, what's happening on our southern border? Absolutely. So what's happening on the southern border is that as migrants are coming through, 
be it uh, if they are seeking asylum or not, they are having their children separated from them. And children are being taken to facilities, um, and the parents are not being told when they're going to be reunited, nor are the children. Um, and uh, there is also uh, uh, news stories that are circulating, uh, which the, the facts are somewhat unclear, but uh, the tracking system behind this is very poor as well. So most of the time, you know, if, for example, children are released to individuals who they consider sponsors, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is uh, taking them to the sponsors, um, the U.S. is then not taking responsibility for what happened to the child after that. Um, right. So there is a multitude of kind of layers to this, and one of them is that, you know, upon immediate entry, they're they're taken from their parents. I mean, it's just as simple as that, right? Um, right. And they're taken to facilities that are really... I, not a lot of people have seen, and there's a lot of privacy behind it. Right, right. Shirley, I'm I'm curious, and I know you're in Mexico City, and I know you work with a lot of people who are deportees, people who, you know, spent the majority of their life in the United States and are are now back in Mexico. Uh, are you seeing uh, this play out in in a reverse way? Right, what Mishgan is talking about is. You know, migrants arriving at the southern border from Latin America and being separated here. Uh, what what happens on the other end? Uh, can, can you talk about some people you may have met uh, who have been separated from their families as a result of their of their deportation? Yeah, the trauma is is obviously extremely intense, and it's also one of those things where, uh, as an outsider, as someone who neither has children nor has a history of family separation that I can connect with in the past it's very clear that the thing that they're most able to to do is provide support for each other. Um, these networks formed in part because people were being deported to all over the country and, you know, hiding in their houses, just crying, trying to get their kids on, on video phone and trying to have conversations on, I'm calling it a video phone, pardon me. But um, I mean, there was a great article, I think, in uh, the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago in which Masha Gessen, who was a specialist in this from Russia, uh, speaking about how the separation of children and parents is a form of state, state terror. And what is being done to separate parents and children, I mean, we've seen it called a deterrent from the Trump administration. Um, we see it called, or we've heard it described as a deterrent when it comes to incarcerating teenagers. Uh, we know that one of the things that is happening in the prison system is that uh, domestic, domestic partnership visits and visits with children are being cut down and now they're doing video visits if they're doing anything at all. And the thing that is hard for me, and I don't mean to go macro on this, is that I feel as if the more earnestly I or other people who are activists in this articulate all the reasons why this is torture um, and why this is not okay, either for the children or parents, the more likely that pops up in the long-term presentation to stockholders for either a childhood detention center or a private prison industry, because this is not a byproduct of the policy. This is the policy. Uh, Mishkan, you you made a pretty crucial distinction earlier that I'm, I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about among the people who are uh, being separated on the southern border. Uh, you said whether they be migrants or whether they be uh, asylum seekers. Can you talk a little bit more about that distinction and how it could or should play out here? Right. So we 
amongst the chatter in the comment sections, which, you know, I don't know why I still read, um, is that, you know, people justify this action by saying, oh, well, they're illegal, yeah. right? Um, which is a terrible word to use in general yeah. uh, to dehumanize people. But there, there are laws protecting people escaping war uh, or other torturous events um, within their country. So, for example, if you come to the border and you declare that you are seeking asylum because your life is imminently in risk, then you, you go through a process, and there's nothing illegal about that, right? There's nothing illegal about doing that. There's actually processes in place that allow you to do that. I mean, um, and, and they have been for years and years and years. So what we're doing is even in those situations, right, to act as a deterrent from escaping war or escaping uh, uh, turf wars or what, what, whatever the situation might be even on, on the border or um, in, in the south, is that we're, we're saying that, you know, this will be a deterrent. Well, if, you're, if, if your life is at risk and the life of your family is at risk, that's really not going to be a deterrent, right? Um, right. But they're separating those individuals as well. And so now the question becomes is, you know, uh, is, is the U.S. acting in an illegal manner if they are asylum seekers? And that's when we see that the, that the United Nations has recently become involved in uh, saying that the U.S. might be acting illegally uh, that in, in the separation of parents from uh, children, right. especially of those who are asylum seekers. Well, uh, there's a young woman named Syra. I say young woman because she just turned 18. Uh, she was taken across the border to, to Michigan when she was six months old, did not even know she was undocumented until her father was taken by ICE when she was 10 and shipped back to Mexico. The mother decided to um, take Syra back to Mexico, to the state of Michoacan, which was this was a, during the peak of the war on drugs, precisely because she thought there could be nothing more traumatic than the kid being separated from her dad. Uh, the mother tried to set up her own business. Immediately, word spread around in the town that there were gringos. I mean, that's what they call them, even though they're Mexican. Gringos back in town. Um, and they started getting extortions, death threats, rape threats. Um, she was 10 years old, started, fell into a depression, wouldn't leave the house. And the mother decided to go back to the U.S. and apply for asylum. This was before they were separating parents. They spent three years fighting their case. Um, the mother was on electronic monitor the entire time. Saida had to go through, basically their lawyer had suggested that they publicly agitate and create social media and do press. And what I wanted to ask about this was I just was thinking there is, there is a study that needs to be done about the trauma inflicted on children by the fucking comment section. Because Saida had to read the comment section and she got addicted to it and to finding out, you know, they would say things like, why don't they fix their own country? Well, her mom tried. Right. 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 Um, and so the, the thing that I think about is things were so bad here that despite knowing how bad it was for the kid to be separated from her dad, she was still willing to take the risk of it just to get her back to a place where she could be safe. Right. That's the misconception is that a lot of people don't realize that individuals who leave their country, you know, in these cases or in most cases, don't leave to have a better life. They leave to have a life. Yeah. Right. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, 
they could pee at death's door. And that is, it's, that's their reality. It's, it's, it's not to come and take jobs from Americans. It's not to come and, you know, uh, take social services. It's literally survival. It's literally survival because they would be dead in their country. Right. Uh, I have uh, a point, and I don't know if it's a question or not, but uh, both of you have mentioned, you know, the word torture, talking about uh, whether separating children from from their parents in this context uh, is so harmful. Uh, it doesn't really matter what, what your policy or thoughts are about immigration. It's just so destructive to, to human lives and families that that's not even part of the conversation. Uh, I heard uh, a defense of this policy from someone on the radio recently who said this really isn't that different uh, from what we do already when we incarcerate people. You know, it's really just a matter. I guess this is the banality of evil. You know, it's like it's really just a matter of the system. Right. We, we process young people in one way, you know, when we house and detain them, we process older people another way. It's not separating families necessarily. It's just it's part of the system and what we do. Uh, and I, I say that because even though this person was using that argument to defend this policy, which is uh, pretty harmful and horrific, uh, he makes kind of a profound point about what happens when a person, an American citizen, is arrested and imprisoned. There's not really much of a conversation about um, them being separated from their family or if, if they have children, what the effect on their children would be. It's never a part of the conversation. You know, you follow the letter of the law. So, again, this is presented in the context now of immigration, which is, uh, you know, this national conversation that we're having and has become this flashpoint in a culture war. But how different is it? And, and I guess I'll, I'll turn to you, Shirley, because I know you've done a lot of work on both sides, right? I know you've done a lot of work um, with incarcerated people, and I know you've done a lot of work with people who have been deported and separated from their families as a result of immigration, uh, how different is that if it's different at all? What's the comparison here between the harmful effects on families of mass incarceration and uh, these immigration policies? I mean, it's interesting you say that because uh, one of the men I know, he had temporary custody of his son and was picked up after dropping his son off at school. And for him, he had two issues. One was that he couldn't be with his son. Two was that now he knew his wife, his ex, his baby mother, the mother of his child, would take the baby, and she did, and she's a drug addict who's in and out of jail and is in no position to parent. And he uh, fought being suicidal many over many months after being deported. And he said that having been incarcerated, because they locked him up in detention for four months before deporting him, that he has a 10-year ban before he can go back to the States. And as far as he's concerned, it's a prison sentence. Right. Um, but... While he is in prison, he's going to do the best that he can to make his time. He's doing his time in, in Mexico, and he's going to make it mean something. I would suppose that the difference in terms of the incarceration is that we, as we know from how budget cuts work and how dehumanization works within the system, all of the means through which people who are separated, either from their children or their parents, might comfort each other and create community for each other are also systematically being wiped away. And so to go back to kind of what I said before, which is 
it's like every single horrible thing that we are doing now, you know, that defender you referred to earlier is completely correct. There is nothing we're doing now that didn't have a, a justification for itself implanted in the American discourse right from day one. Like if there's one thing we knew how to do from the minute we founded the country was dehumanize people and break them down. And so, yes, we take people away from their parents and lock them up. Again, I don't, it's not a bug, it's the game. Yeah. Right. I mean, is that, how different is that from any global policy of incarceration? I know that the United States is exceptional in terms of the number of our citizens that we lock up. But, you know, I mean, are, are there countries in the world, are there places in the world where they're having this conversation? What are the solutions to, um, and this is a much, much bigger conversation about the nature of incarceration and, uh, you know, how we deal with social ills like that. Um, but it can't purely be unique to the United States, right? The assumption anywhere else in the world is if you're detained, uh, then you're separated from the rest of your family. Is that just, is that to say that is one powerful piece of evidence that the way that we um, treat these social ills is, is flawed? Or is this, you know, I guess, as you say, surely just symptomatic of uh, American history? Oh, where's Nell Bernstein when we need her? <laughs> Why? What would Nell Bernstein do? Kick in the door and answer that question? Hell yeah. <laughs> while, while beatboxing on a flute? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think her answer would be, uh, I used to have a lot of fantasies about how a juvenile system could be one in which a child's life was changed for the better. I mean, we've seen it happen, right? Um, but Nell was pretty convinced that the concept of juvenile incarceration is by definition inhumane. And, you know, if you read the book, the book kind of takes gets you there. I will say that when I visited a Mexican prison and, you know, you say here Mexican prison and it's like, woo, woo. I was sitting with a couple of guys and I had I was explaining no contact visits to them because they'd never heard of them before. And these guys in a Mexican prison, their children come to visit them and sit with them at a picnic table and sit on their laps three times a week. And they eat food that the parents cooked for them. And when you have two men who are serving 20 years in a Mexican prison look at you with absolute horror when you describe American prison conditions, it's a pretty good sign that we're doing something wrong. Fair enough. Uh, could you just for our sake, and so we can put it on the record, uh, tell us a little bit about Nell's book, uh, since we mentioned it and we are plugging Nell Bernstein and she is a yo and, and PNS alum if there ever were one. It's a very relevant citation because that was that's what she wrote about right was how families are separated by uh incarceration also another thing that came to mind when i mentioned Nell is that i i believe either her opening quote or a quote in the introduction is that the only way things are going to change is if we become as outraged by the treatment of other children as we are about our own and she wrote two books the second and outgrowth of the first the first one was called, I believe there are no children. No, there are no children. Here's the Chicago guy. I'm sorry. Uh, she wrote one, the title of which I can't remember, about 10, 12 years ago, called uh, about specifically the impact of the children on children of the incarcerated, um, long-term and short-term. And compared to how things are now in the system she describes, it was paradise back then. And the more recent book, which won many awards, which was, and again, I guess this title answers the question you asked, Burning Down the House, the End of Juvenile Prison. It's embarrassing to me to say that I worked in juvie for 
I worked, I mean, I worked with the Beat Within for 12 years and was still calling them youth facilities and juvenile hall. And it wasn't until reading Nell's book that I realized, no, we got to start calling it prison. Yeah, that actually, I had a pretty powerful reminder. Uh, and I know I've mentioned this before, but I don't know if you and I have spoken about this, Shirley. Um, I am uh, a John Jay fellow. Uh, for it's for journalists who who are writing about issues related to solitary confinement. Uh, so we had a very long, very dark, but very informative uh, symposium at John Jay with a series of speakers. One of the big problems was defining solitary confinement. Mm. Uh, I think I always thought about it in terms of you know Pelican Bay, Supermax, twenty three and a half hours in your cell, uh, or the box at Rikers. Uh, but once they started to describe it, I realized um, that when I was locked up at YGC, I was in solitary, you know, um, they kept us in our room. Well, I mean, the, the disciplinary measures that they had there, it's de facto solitary, right? So if you get in trouble for something, you're, you're placed on what's called DRB, which stands for disciplinary review board, which means you have to wait in your cell for three hours or three days, sorry, 72 hours with no programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, while they determine what your punishment is. Like, that's not your punishment. That's mm-hmm. where you wait for your punishment. Uh, and, you know, all the studies indicate that the psychological effects of um, solitary confinement start to set in in a time period like that. It's really only, you know, 23 hours with no stimulation and no social interaction. And a lot of times that led to weeks at a time uh, at YGC. And I know this is off topic, but in many ways it's not because these are children who are separated from their families. We were children who are separated from our families. I was locked up there with 11 year olds. You know, if you don't get out of bed to go to school in the morning, then you miss your program window, right? Like, all right, let's go. It's nine. It's eight thirty. It's time to go to school. And you're like, like a regular kid, they just close your door and lock it again. And that's it. You don't go to school. So that means you're there until uh, the school day is over, which is three thirty. And a lot of times, punitively, that means you won't come out for dinner either. Uh, so it, it's just, I was triggered by your insight that, you know, we use words like juvenile hall, which are pseudonyms, instead of just saying like kid prisons or juvenile prisons. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a reminder that, you know, we think of solitary as something that's very formalized, which it is, um, but there's a lot of de facto solitary. And, and it was a, a pretty personally harrowing experience for me to listen to doctors talk about the psychological effects of solitary confinement and one realized that I experienced all those effects and, and still continue to experience those effects. And then also hear people define what solitary confinement is and realize that I had experienced it um, and never really legitimized my experience. Cause I thought, Oh, I was just in the hall. Sometimes right. they, they just throw you in your room for a week. You know, that's just how it is. Um, and that and is they relevant. Call it, they call it room time. They don't call it cell time, but it's yeah, it's room cell. time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, room time sounds so. Now imagine, uh, Russ and Shirley, that you know the kids who are being brought over—they're um, also experiencing a certain form of this, right? They're experiencing, in some ways, when when they're being processed, a form of this, from what I'm reading, and as well as their parents too. Some of these detention centers have this built in, so it. Especially for you know who have experienced both who are in juvenile hall and who have experienced war trauma, it's just torturous to do that to them. And I, and I keep using the word torture because that's exactly what it is. It's literally letting them be alone with the thoughts of everything that they've experienced and everything that has gone wrong. Right? It's, 
how can we, as a developed nation, say that we're doing the right thing when we know firsthand that we are injuring and harming people? Yeah, no, it's harrowing. Uh, I I don't want to say that Abby's not going to be joining us, but I kind of <laughs> feel like we're going to wrap up soon. So unfortunately, Abby won't be joining us. But uh, Shirley, if you're comfortable, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about Abby just and, and give a little bit of his background and story. I'd love to have him on a future show. Um, but just for our sake today, his, his story sounds particularly relevant. Uh, so it would just be helpful to hear a, a little bit about him from you just based on your interactions with him and your relationship? Well, you know, one of the things that this actually gave me some insight into when I think about Abby's personal history is when I think about his trauma, I focused, I think he's 24, 25 now, and I've focused in my mind specifically on what it means to have been separated from his children. And also, yes, to have been sent here in handcuffs because that's how they do it. And to know that he can't go back to his country anymore, um, to Florida anymore. Um but I'm thinking now about the story about how he crossed over. And the first time he crossed over, he was like 13 and he did it with a couple of friends and he got picked up by border patrol and shipped to an orphanage. He had some cash on him because they give you cash um, to an orphanage on the Southern side of the border um, where you just bribed the guards. And then he and his friends just played pool and drank, um, you know, drank beers and smoked cigarettes at the this age of 12 or 13. like, um, the Pinocchio, right? Isn't that what... <laughs> right? <laughs> Where they uh, went to actually... Pleasure Island and played pool and smoked cigars? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was Pleasure Island. You know, it was the Stephen Elliott thing, a life without consequences. And then, you know, he called his home. He got back home. And then he crossed the border again. Now, crossing the border in and of itself, you're doing... He was, I think, 14 the next time he did it. Um, but uh, in and of itself, you're putting your hands in yourself in the hands of some serious thousand-yard stare dead-eyed guys um, who are making it really clear that you're just a wallet to them. You know, they take your cell phone away. They've got guns out. I mean, it's an experience that a middle-class white kid who went to a private school would be in therapy for and have six book deals about uh, for just those three days. You know, but Abby went through two migrations across the border in which he had violent confrontations with both the law and the people who were taking him over as an unaccompanied minor, and then settled into his life in Florida. So we're talking about, and this is something that you're going to see over and over again happening with the deportees in, in Mexico, and certainly with the migrants who are coming up from Central America, um, which is that it's cumulative. It's trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And each individual person that I've met has a different way of trying to cope with that. And I want to make really... I mean, in Abby's case, I don't want to describe him in any kind of like victim narratives based on what he's undergone, because he and and Lenny and um, Ana Laura and Diego and a whole bunch of people that hopefully at different times will be on this show uh, could teach a TED talk or two a thing about resilience. Um, the only thing I can say is that the way they're getting through it is by coming together. And what's interesting about what's happening on the border now, especially because, I mean, this is a big issue, Saito's mother in, under the Obama administration that helped lay the ground for this was on electronic monitor for three years 
while fighting her case under the new legislation, she would have been in jail for those three years while fighting her case. So not only are we making it harder and harder for people and more traumatic for them, uh, we are also denying them all of the ways in which they, as human beings with dignity, would find ways to combat that trauma. It is one of the reasons why, despite all of the horror shows that I sometimes experience, mostly read about, that take place in this country, uh, find it more human. Um, to go back to what you were saying earlier, Mishkan, um, in Mexico, with everything that's happening, there is no world in which the concept of no contact exists. And I do think that that has something to do with the resilience that I see both amongst the incarcerated and the migrants and the deported in the various collectives I've encountered, which is there is not yet, and actually there is a move towards for-profit prisons in Mexico, um, but there is not yet this systematic institutional separation and isolation of children and adults from each other and from their communities that we have developed to sort of a fine art in the U.S. Michigan, before we wrap up, I do want to come back to you because you mentioned at the beginning that these are very personal issues for you because of uh, your mom's story and your sister's story, uh, but you're also a mother. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little curious about how that has shaped or reshaped or informed um, the way that you've followed and understood this story when you're hearing news about people being separated. How informed is it by your experience now uh, as a mother and a, a daughter of an asylum seeker? They say that trauma is carried forward from generation to generation, right? And that's now being scientifically proven. I, I can tell you as a mom who had a mother who was a refugee of war um, and seeing the events unfold in our current society and, and the fear that's instilled in immigrant communities, I am so much more protective of my kids. Um, I am so much more alert and kind of worried about them as well because we don't know what's going to happen next. We can't sit back and think that it's not going to happen to us at some point. At some point in history, there, there will be a policy that will directly affect us as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe this is an indirect effect that we're currently seeing, but at some point in history, it will start affecting us. So if we don't do something about what's happening at the border and separated from today, then it, it may come back and happen to me as, you know, a, a child of immigrant parents, you know, um, and... And one day maybe my kids will be affected by it because they're, you know, Spanish-speaking, half-white, half-Afghan uh, children. So we never know what that impact is. And so I'm extra protective of them. I try to have them understand what's happening and, and have conversations with them about uh, things that are occurring because I want them to know. But at the same time, it's also a protective factor of just having, giving them the knowledge of, well, if things, you know, go the wrong way and just because I'm brown I get taken away from this family, um, then you'll understand why that's happening, even though I was born here. So it's crazy to think that those conversations are occurring in households yeah. with children who were born in the U.S., of mm -hmm. immigrant parents, but that fear is in me. And I'm sure that fear is in a lot of kids who are, you know, first generation. 
Uh, well, thank you for, for sharing that perspective. I think it's uh, a pretty powerful point to end on. Uh, I want to thank both of you, uh, Michigan and Shirley, for being here and you know, offering your insights. This is an incredibly powerful conversation. It will continue. Um, we, it touches on a couple of the verticals on the site, obviously, uh, cell migration, uh, which is our um, mass incarceration vertical and borderless. Um, but, you know, it's also just, it's, it's a health story. You know, it's a mental health story. It's a, it's a family story. Uh, so thanks to both of you for being here, Mishgan and Shirley. Thank you, Yiming, our producer, as always. Uh, and thanks uh, to everybody for listening. We'll be back soon. Have a good one. Thank you. This episode of Quest on Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.